Previously on Flying the Line. The strike at Southern Airlines tested the association like no conflict prior. And with the country's election of a new president, new opportunities for labor would arise. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 19, Internal Politicking, 1960 to 1962. Clancy Sayan was 41 years old in 1960, a year of decision for him. He had drifted into the Alpa presidency almost inadvertently in 1951, and like many men who have careers thrusted upon them, Sayan was dissatisfied. It seemed almost as if he had never made a choice of his own, as if his life were drifting away from him under the control of others. If he were ever to seek a career of his own choosing, it would have to be soon. Sayan was at the focal point for every variety of discontent, both internal and external. He felt stifled and powerless, battered from every side by people with grievances, all of whom seemed to blame him for their troubles. Put simply, by the end of Sayan's third term, he was burned out on the association. He had received offers to enter private business with friends and he was eager to accept. With his restless energy, quick mind, and slick executive style, Sayan would be a natural in the business world, as several of the airline executives who had crossed paths with Sayan had already realized. Sayan also felt a strong urge for personal growth and development, as his academic career while he was a Braniff co-pilot had proved. However, the lure of academic life had weakened for Sayan. At his age, he was too old to seek further graduate education. And in any case, the fast track in the business world attracted him more. Had it not been for two factors, Sayan would almost certainly not have sought re-election to a fourth term as ALPA's president in 1960. The first factor was the Southern Airways strike. By mid-1959, the situation at the airline had deteriorated so badly that a strike seemed unavoidable. Sayan felt obligated to the Southern Airways pilots to see them through the crisis, and the timing of developments there forced him to delay making a firm decision to resign. Then, by early 1960, the second factor caught up with Sayan, one that would rouse his competitive instincts and force him into a hotly contested race for the presidency. For the first time in ALPA's history, a prominent non-pilot, an outsider, was seeking the ALPA presidency. Former Civil Aeronautics Board Chairman James Landis, a man with powerful connections and a formidable background in the legal profession, was the candidate of a strong anti-SAIAN group that emerged in certain Eastern Airlines locals. James Landis was a pure, started-from-the-bottom Boston politician who fought his way to the top through the thickets of politics and law. 
Along his journey to the top, Landis became a close ally of Joseph Kennedy Sr., the former ambassador to Great Britain, Democratic Party power, and father of John F. Kennedy. Landis was entirely capable on his own, but the patronage of the elder Kennedy led to Truman's appointing Landis to the Civil Aeronautics Board in 1946. When Truman and old Joe Kennedy had a falling out in 1948, Landis lost his board chairmanship. Dave Benke had warred continuously with Landis during his tenure at the board, but once Landis left office, they became fast friends. Benke had an eye for legal talent, and in his prime, Landis was among the best lawyers in the country. During the late 1940s, Landis served Alpa well on several occasions, the most famous being the National Airlines strike of 1948. After that, Landis represented individual pilots in numerous grievance cases. All the while, he was working as a principal financial and legal advisor to the Kennedy family. When John F. Kennedy won the presidency over Richard Nixon in 1960, Landis headed a Blue Ribbon Commission on Government Reorganization during the transition. After the inauguration, Landis filled a permanent slot on a similar presidential commission, one function of which was to look into the regulatory agencies, particularly the Civil Aeronautics Board. In his capacity as a Kennedy campaign advisor, Landis began to make contacts with dissident ALPA members in early 1960. In short order, a diverse coalition of anti-Saiyan elements hatched a plan to run Landis against Saiyan at the upcoming Miami Convention in November 1960. From the dissident's point of view, Landis had everything. He was well-connected politically, he had a highly recognized name among pilots, and he was a legal expert at dealing with regulatory agencies like the Civil Aeronautics Board. Their major hurdle was that Landis was not a pilot and had never been one. Perhaps Landis was unaware that JFK himself was trying to keep him from challenging Sayin, and certainly the dissidents supporting him were unaware of it. Their promotion of the Landis candidacy was motivated more by a dislike of Sayin, as evidenced by their repeated failures in 1952 and 1956, than by any particular affinity for Landis. Landis, feeling very much an outsider and an anachronism among the youthful JFK entourage, sought to escape from an intolerable situation, and he saw the Alpa job as an easy one from which he could draw a nice salary by trading on the influence and reputation he still had. In September 1960, while the JFK-Nixon campaign was in full swing, Landis declared his candidacy for the Alpa presidency, announcing what amounted to a platform calling for various improvements in the way Alpa was run. Landis made it clear, however, that he was challenging Sayin for the Alpa job because Sayin had failed as a leader. Landis insisted that he had the support of the majority of the nation's working pilots. 
He said Alba had fallen badly behind under Saiyan, that it lacked leadership, organization, and a program for the future. He called for decentralization and the recruiting of experts to run Alba, and he chided Saiyan for failing to provide the public relations the pilots needed. The last argument was, of course, a thinly veiled hint that Alpa would have a friend in the White House should JFK win. Pilots from 16 airlines were named as the campaign committee for Landis. Without exception, they were part of the anti saiyan faction that had never been able to command a majority in any convention before. With Landis, they hoped to change that. When reporters asked Landis to cite specific examples of Clancy Sayan's failings, he mentioned the Southern Airway strike, then three months old. A smile must have crossed Sayan's face in Chicago when he read that remark. In fact, the pilots of Southern Airways idolized Sayan. Furthermore, Landis cited the 1960 strike by Eastern pilots over the Federal Aviation Agency's demand for unannounced check rides by inspectors in the new jets. Slim Babbitt and Jerry Wood must have smiled at that one. They were still among the biggest of Eastern's big guns, and they were committed to saying. But to anyone who understood how Democratic ALPA's internal politics were, the Landis candidacy was no joke. Landis was campaigning vigorously, visiting local councils all over the country. When the convention met in Miami on November 14, 1960, the key vote on the Landis candidacy was a purely procedural one. A provision of the ALPA bylaws required a two-thirds majority of the board of directors to make a non-member eligible for presidency. If Landis had lost on the procedural question, no vote on his actual candidacy could be taken. Before the key procedural vote came up, Landis's backers tried to win a suspension of the rules, allowing Landis to address the convention directly. They argued that in the name of democracy, all sides of every question ought to be heard. The opposition led by Jerry Wood, countered with a display of hard-nosed politics. They knew that Landis was a formidable orator who might well sway the convention with his eloquence, so they staked everything on a vote, denying him the right to address the convention until after the vote on the constitutional amendment. They knew they had the votes to win, which would make Landis's candidacy moot. After that, Landis's eloquence wouldn't matter. Sayan's supporters pulled out all the stops to beat back the Landis candidacy. They argued the special character of Alpa required a pilot as president, and that its unique position within the labor movement would be lost if a non-pilot should become president. One by one, men who had been involved in Alpa from the beginning came to the front of the hall to express their views with extraordinary clarity and historical purpose. Most people were not well-versed in history, even their own, but the delegates to the 1960 convention who opposed the Landis candidacy knew the history of ALPA and how to use it. After several speeches highlighting the case, 
that ALPA is best led by pilots, for pilots, the transcript records reflected that each of these speeches was followed by applause, as neatly noted in brackets by the stenographer. Obviously, the dissidents supporting Landis did not have the votes to present him to the convention. But at the same time, there was no point in totally alienating them. Before the actual vote was taken, Captain Ray Hutchinson of Pan American magnanimously suggested that Eastern Airlines' Chuck Basham, Landis's most prominent supporter, be allowed to speak his piece fully. Basham proved adept at enunciating his position, probably performing as well as Landis himself could have done, but his argument swayed nobody. Landis lost on a voice vote, one Basham and his supporters were willing to accept. But a demand for a roll call vote emerged from the American Airlines Councils. The leader of this movement was Nick O'Connell, the man who would lead the American Airlines pilots out of ALPA in 1963 when he became Master Executive Council Chairman. O'Connell's parliamentary tactics were futile and they occasioned a lively dispute with Henry Weiss, the convention's parliamentarian. Whatever goodwill was engendered by the graciousness of Landis's supporters in defeat was quickly dissipated in O'Connell's parliamentary nitpicking. After the roll call, a massive desire for internal harmony made Sands' election nearly unanimous. The victors were magnanimous towards Landis's supporters. After the vote, the convention gave a standing vote of appreciation to Judge Landis. The members rose and applauded Basham as he left the convention floor. The Landis episode was over, and a spirit of harmony prevailed throughout ALPA. That is except for the lingering animosity of the American Airlines pilot group. This animosity had become chronic in ALPA affairs since the late 1950s. Of the convention's business, only re-nominating and electing Sayin to another four-year term remained. He had no announced opposition at this point. Sayin was elected by a voice vote. The American Airlines pilots constituted the core of nays. A subsequent voice vote to make the election unanimous saw their councils remain silent. It was an ominous sign. Thus. Clancy Sayan was elected to a fourth full term in an office he never really wanted in the first place. What he thought, we can only imagine, but the ambiguity in his acceptance speech gives more than a hint of dissatisfaction, both professional and personal. While the climactic debate over the Landis vote was in progress, Sayan had absented himself from the convention. He was surprised when the delegates called him back to the floor, as only his competitive instincts led him to accept a fourth term, and though his supporters couldn't know it, he had no intention of serving out his full term. Just about a year later, on October 31, 1961, Sayan announced that he intended to resign from the ALPA presidency, effective with the next Board of Directors convention which was soon after rescheduled for Miami in late May of 1962. 
this set off a furious round of internal politicking, most of it purely personal. Technically, Saiyan's resignation in midterm, between conventions, would have meant that First Vice President John Carroll of Transworld Airways would become president. Saiyan's decision to delay his resignation until the next board meeting meant that Carroll would have to campaign for the office like any other candidate. The anti saiyan forces, who never commanded a majority at any convention, launched a vigorous assault on Saiyan, claiming that he should step down immediately. But Saiyan wouldn't resign in favor of John Carroll. He regarded Carroll as a link between the American Airlines dissidents and the TWA councils, and he feared that if Carroll became president, TWA would slip into the American Airlines orbit. Saiyan was not alone. Although Carroll was widely liked on a personal basis, he still excited a vague distrust among many people. The distrust had more to do with doubts about Carroll's judgment than anything else. As later events proved, they were probably justified. During the fight over crew complement in the early 1960s, the Flight Engineers International Association argued that non-pilot engineers were necessary aboard airliners to keep pilots from misbehaving. To support their argument, FEIA officials produced in-flight photos that showed flight attendants at the controls, in the laps of pilots, and generally horsing around. In general, the FAA cracked down on this sort of thing, which ALPA strongly endorsed, agreeing that such behavior was unprofessional and contrary to ALPA's own code of ethics. A number of pilots who were found to have participated in this behavior had their licenses suspended and were fined. But also, thanks to ALPA, none lost their license permanently. These incidents brought up by FEIA never actually endangered an aircraft, but they embarrassed the profession nonetheless. John Carroll would eventually lose his job with TWA because he allowed an unauthorized person, his son, in the cockpit during takeoff. This was long after he failed to supplant Saiyan, but it gives some inkling why people felt misgivings about Carol, even though they couldn't be specific. The general opinion of TWA pilots about John Carroll is mixed. Out of loyalty, many of them agreed to support him for the ALPA presidency but the tone of their conversation indicates that they weren't sorry he lost. When the 1962 Board of Directors meeting convened, the delegates confronted probably the most intense presidential politicking in ALPA's history. Although a narrow consensus had emerged in opposition to Carroll, there was no obvious alternative candidate. Many delegates favored Kay McMurray a former United Airlines captain who had resigned to go into the insurance business and later signed on full-time with ALPA. He had served Clancy Sayan in the same capacity in which Sayan had served Banky, as executive vice president. McMurray had done an excellent job, was widely respected, 
and knew Alpa intimately. But he had two things working against him. First, McMurray, unlike Saiyan, didn't have the crisis of Banky's ouster to explain his decision to leave the cockpit permanently. Second, McMurray bore many of the same handicaps as Jim Landis, and an attempt to make him president would alienate the sizable group that had supported Landis, since it would smack of discrimination, since he would need the same constitutional two-thirds majority that Landis would have required to be eligible to serve because McMurray was an inactive ALPA member. Another major candidate for the presidency in 1962 was United Airlines' Chuck Beatley. Although a reluctant candidate, Beatley was willing to stand in until ALPA's power brokers could find someone else. Operating under the old axiom that you can't beat somebody with nobody, the opposition to John Carroll needed Beatley to serve as a decoy until they were unified on a choice. The vote was close, but an unexpected candidate, Charlie Ruby, then 53 years old and a pilot for National Airlines since the day it was created in 1934, was ALPA's new president. His victory was the product of a combination of forces that we'll get into later. But for now, it would suffice to say that Charlie Ruby was like a comfortable old shoe. In troubled times, people need reassurance and a steady hand. Ruby laid no claim to brilliance, nor did he outline dramatic changes or new departures for ALPA. He was a status quo candidate, and his victory was, in effect, a vindication of Clancy Sayan. All Ruby promised was that he would do the best he could. Everybody who knew Ruby respected his granite-like integrity. For the moment, that would be good enough for Alpa. What of Clarence Nicholas Sayan, released at last from the yoke that bound him to a job he never wanted? At 43, Sayan was ready for a new career. He would take a long vacation first, and then go into the trucking business on the West Coast with his old friend H.B. Anders of United Airlines. In a few months, he would tire of the business and begin flirting with politics. In 1964, Sayan headed Pilots for Johnson against Barry Goldwater. But once again, he turned down offers from the Democratic administration to come to the political arena of Washington to employ the skills he had exhibited as ALPA's president. In early 1965, Sayan did what many smart insiders figured he would do all along. He joined airline management. Eastern Airlines employed Sayan as vice president in charge of West Coast operations to open that territory under new Civil Aeronautics Board route awards. But Sayan never worked a day for Eastern. After accepting the job from company president Floyd Hall, a former TWA pilot and ALPA member, Sayan was en route to Chicago when the Boeing 727, on which he was a passenger, crashed into Lake Michigan. It was a clear night, there was no distress call, and the accident has never been explained. Everybody aboard died. 
the brilliant career of Clancy Sayan, just 46 years old and with a seemingly limitless future, was over. Next time on Flying the Line, the election of ALPA President Charles Ruby, a seemingly status quo leader, brings reform and new ideas to the association, challenging what some members' thoughts on what their union's purpose should be. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 19 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2020. All rights reserved.